press the bell icon on YouTube and don't miss another update. Good morning from New York. This is Vibhuti Jha and welcome to Jaipur Dialogue USA as also on Jaipur Dialogues India. Uh, we are covering this particular important element of Trudeau, trucks, tractors and freedom. It's a very important topic. And uh, to discuss this matter, I have the greatest of pleasure in welcoming Mr. Terry Milevsky from Ottawa, Ontario in Canada, who has been in the forefront of journalistic adventure of his own. He has been in India. He has served. He, he was in India when Indira Gandhi was the prime minister. And uh, he knows he's very famous for his book, Blood for Blood which we talked about during our last sojourn that we had here. In addition, I have Dr. Praveen Sinha, an almost a regular on Jaipur Dialogue now, a professor from California State University in Orange County in California, a professor of accountancy. And he brings about an element of accountability and responsibility with his accountant's balanced view. So having <laughs> talked about that, let me straight away dive into this matter, Terry, is that here is Mr. Trudeau bringing about emergency powers to quell seemingly uh, peaceful demonstration or strike by truckers against COVID vaccine mandate. Reportedly, 90% of the truckers were already vaccinated, but they wanted to retain their freedom against a mandate or a or an instruction or a or a or a or a insist insistence by the government on the freedom element of that share with us about what is the latest in with reference to the entire thing because the thought that came to my mind because trudeau leads a country canada which is a member of g7 which is the epitome of democracy and democratic rules values and freedoms he has been doing Bhangra dances. He's, he tries to be everything to everyone. So he does Bhangra dances. He does paints himself black <laughs> to do things like that. And he has been pretty interesting character on the Canadian political scene. How do you see this shaping up now that the epitome of freedom has crushed the freedom under emergency laws as if there was no other law available to tackle this? which was supposedly very peaceful. And the truckers have moved away without causing any violence. Uh, so the point is, where does freedom stand in the entire process? Your take on that. Well, um, I, 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 won't go, I won't go on too long because uh, it's a bit of a long story. But um, uh, let me just mention a couple of things first and you can pursue what interests you. Um, the first thing to recall is that only two or three weeks ago, uh, the prevailing view in Canada was outrage that uh, Trudeau was not enough of a dictator. <laughs> not, that, not that he was cracking down uh, unfairly, not that he was being a fascist, far from it. It was frustration, anger, and justified anger that all levels of government municipal, provincial, and federal, uh, had utterly failed their publics by failing to prevent the uh, severe economic damage uh, 
that was created by these protests. I'm speaking not just of the blockade in Ottawa, blockade of the national parliament. It's not in, you know, Wellington Street is not just a street in Ottawa. It's the street, that's how you get to parliament. It's the street which runs in between the parliament buildings and the prime minister's office, blocked by big trucks. That's, that's illegal. You can say it's peaceful, fine, uh, but it was certainly economic sabotage. Uh, we have two kids who work downtown. They both lost money. Business is closed. Can't get around. Bus is not running. Our daughter had to spend 50 bucks to get an Uber to take her home because there are no buses. And she had to go a huge, long, circuitous route. A minor inconvenience, perhaps, added up times millions of people. And it gets pretty serious, very serious in the case of the Ambassador Bridge between Windsor and the, in Canada and Detroit in the United States, uh, upon which North America's integrated automotive industry depends to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars worth of goods daily on that bridge, uh, to the point that in the first week of the blockade, just in the state of Michigan, workers there lost $50 million in income and three automotive plants in Ontario were forced to close down. So I, I, I'm making these points to indicate that uh, as far as we know, there haven't been uh, major, there have been some minor, uh, major outbreaks of violence, uh, but there certainly has been serious damage. And that was why most Canadians said, why doesn't the government do something? Uh, we can't go on like this, having the capital city and the parliament blockaded uh, by a bunch of yahoos with crazy ideas about overthrowing the government. And yes, that was their idea, not just that they wanted to have uh, freedom not to have a vaccine certificate when they crossed the border. No, the website for this protest was set up in 2019 before the pandemic even began. Why? Because they wanted to save the hell with, the, with Trudeau and his climate change ideas were for the oil and gas industry. And that's, that, 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 those are the origins, Western alienation uh, and sometimes extreme right politics. Those were the people who wrote the manifesto saying we want to overthrow the government, cancel all the uh, vaccine mandates uh, and get rid of Trudeau. Uh, certainly not democracy. I mean, we had an election in September in Canada, the government was reelected. And the final point I make by way of introduction is that although there has been plenty of loose talk about how Trudeau's a fascist dictator, um, first, the shoe doesn't fit in very well. As I say, a lot of people are tired of him apologizing and pandering and not being tough enough. Um, and secondly, it's important to recognize that the emergency powers that he has invoked are entirely subject to the will of parliament. This isn't a dictatorship where the, the prime minister says, okay, I'm sending in the troops, lock them up on my say-so. Everything that he does to use any of these emergency powers uh, is subject and, and is being debated now in parliament uh, to a vote in parliament not just in general, but any specific transgression that the parliament disagrees with. And he doesn't have a majority in parliament. 
He's the, he leads the largest party, but he doesn't have a majority. He can't dictate to Parliament how they will vote. They may vote it down. They're going to have a vote tomorrow night, Monday night in Ottawa. Uh, so these powers, uh, which allowed, for example, it, it sounds like a small thing, but it's actually a big thing if you've got a roadblock by big trucks. That is that the tow truck companies didn't want to come and pull them away because they might lose business. They were threatened in some cases. Don't help the police. So what do you do exactly if you don't have tow trucks big enough or willing to tow the rigs away when you've got a population saying, get these guys out of there. I need to get to work. The business of the country must go on. We can't be hijacked and, in, and blockaded by any bunch of yahoos. So that's probably enough by way of introduction just to indicate to you that uh, there are many more sides to this than have been widely reported. And there has been this narrative that, you know, Trudeau has blotted his copybook as a Democrat. He's now uh, uh, being a dictator. Not exactly. Canadians are cheering for vaccine mandates. I saw a poll yesterday, a new one. 63% of Canadians say that people should be required to get vaccinated. Not just that it should be a, that it's a good thing if they get vaccinated, but that they should be required to get vaccinated. So that's a, almost two thirds of Canadians say the hell with this nonsense. They should they should they should all get vaccinated and they should prove it. The initial cause was the requirement by the federal government in Canada, like the federal government in the United States, to require truckers coming across the border between our two countries to provide proof of vaccination. Absolutely oh, correct. Oh, the tyranny. Oh, the tyranny. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody, I don't think anybody in sane mind has ever said that vaccines must not be taken. That's not an issue at all. The question is the, you know, what do you call, if, uh, you know, people talk about the freedom. Is the load on freedom over much? You know, where does the where does the line on freedom get drawn? And that's what is important here. Yes, United States, Canada, India, the, everywhere the vaccine has been a requirement. And that's how so many lives have been saved. But the issue here is of a different kind. You know, like Bill Maher, the liberal icon commentator called Trudeau almost Hitler-like. You know, things like that. You know, people no. have been unhappy about it. India, for example, the, the, the question that comes straight to the mind is that India dealt with the entire farmers' strike on democratic freedoms. And Prime Minister Modi has been criticized heavily that while democracy may have survived in India, and he did not provoke anybody of uh, violence. He did not shoot out to people, did not use the government power to put them behind bars. Every country has its own democratic requirement. Even Indira Gandhi, when she imposed the emergency, it was as per law, as per the constitution, to protect or defend whatever she thought was imperative for her to do. The, that is not an issue. Issue is, is when do you use those powers, banking laws of seizing assets, capturing properties and things like that. So you are right. There is everything that happens has a seed done long ago. You know, you talked about 2019, where the manifesto was done to throw out Trudeau. 
the manifesto, the toolkit for throwing out Modi is out in the open, right? Attack him on everything related to human yeah. rights and violations and all that. Yeah. So, Praveen, just, having, yeah. Yeah. Let me just add one thing. Please, I, I, I want Praveen to, to, to get in on this because I'd be interested in, in his perspective. But the um, I just want to add one thing on the question of violence. There was another truckers convoy demonstration at the same time protesting the same issues uh, in southern Alberta, on the Alberta border with the United States, at which 11 people have been charged with weapons offenses and four of them have been charged with conspiracy to murder RCMP police officers. Now, this is extremely serious. We haven't got a verdict. We have charges. I won't rule on whether they're guilty or not. But I know enough that it's extremely worrying. And I've seen the list of weapons seized, high capacity magazines, body armor, handguns, long guns, you name it. This is extremely worrying. Besides that, there was an attempted arson in Ottawa. There have been people pushed to the ground and harassed for the crime of wearing masks <laughs> by people in the in uh, members of the, the protest brigade which has become a sort of loose amalgam of uh, anyone or uh, call them aunties, call them what you like. They don't even know about the manifesto to bring down Trudeau. They don't even know what the protest is about. They just know that they like a protest. Uh, so we better not proceed too far on the assumption that this is entirely a peaceful affair. They wanted to coerce a duly elected <clears throat> government to do as they wished. And they blockaded the capital city in order to accomplish that. And they jeopardized the livelihoods and the jobs <clears throat> of millions of people. Dr. Sinha, yeah. coming back to the same topic, uh, you know, this is in, in the United States, we are looking at the vicious uh, play, you know, you know, people had, have had, we have had riots of our own here. Uh, police was not called, emergency powers were not invoked. How do you see this thing happen in terms of protection of property, assets, fundamental rights, and the freedom to protest? How does this entire thing gel? Because what is critical here in my thought process is that somewhere along the line, the people who are taking advantage of this, we never get to know the truth. Yeah. You know, so the media also plays its own game. At, th at this point in time, India is not a conversation matter. Yeah, but we yeah. will draw the parallel at some point in time. But let's talk about the Canadian action. Should Biden do that as well here, if it, something like that happens? Well, I, I totally agree with the outcome that Trudeau has achieved. He achieved the right thing. The truckers had to be taken out. The question is the means. And how should a democratic country, especially a very a gentle democracy as we know Canada as in the US, a kind of democracy that a lot of Americans wish to see in, in the US, uh, dealt with it. Uh, there was such a heavy handed approach and that approach has not mellowed down yet, uh, which has been taken against these people who are exercising their rights. And I think what Terry mentioned, being in capital, blockading, shutting down everything was, in, was not right. And I think, as you noted, all of us noted, they left. There was no fires. There were no riots of the type that a lot of people expected. Nothing happened. They left. 
And I think in a mature democracy like Canada, we expect the dialogue. We expect we we expect the the government to respect the wishes of the people who are demonstrating. And whether you like it or not, vaccination has become a very polarizing issue. And if there are professors from Stanford, Oxford, and Harvard who come out and make very, very cogent epidemiologists, by the way, who make these arguments that the vaccination was not necessary, you can expect your public to be confused. Media has a huge role to play in this vaccination uh, polarization that we see all over the world. And I wish it was done a little bit differently. But coming back to the topic, I think the outcome was good. The means was not right. It could have, should have been done in a more open fashion, not in such a heavy-handed way. And the kind of words he used to describe them. Let's be very clear. Whenever a movement starts, fringe elements will always jump in, whether it's on the left or on the right, and they will try to hijack it, sabotage it, and try to grind their own axe. Were all the truckers like that, right-winger, uh, Nazi sympathizers and all that? I don't think so. I absolutely don't think so. They might be in a small fringe element, but painting them all in that way, using a heavy-handed approach, and the way the bank accounts are being frozen, the way they have been held, especially you know the stories that come out, I think that does not look Canada-like to me. It looks very different. It looks like, a, I mean, I don't want to use those words, but it does not look like a way a mature democracy will handle uh, matters which eventually disappeared so easily and i would I don't use the, don't use the word easily that lightly i think it was not there was no violence of the type that we thought they might do nothing happened they left right i mean if i'm incorrect please correct me too. no you're, you're correct and uh, of course the reason they left is because they were pushed out and the only action that the police have taken is to push them out not a shot was fired and there were no injuries i don't know how much better it can get than that. Uh, I don't know what's heavy-handed about that. After three weeks of blockading the city and refusing to move, the police came in with horses and in force to literally push them off the street and to tow the trucks out of there. Okay. Uh, something that they could not have done without the emergency law to compel the tow truck companies to give them cover. We had to do it. Okay, what uh, I meant was- so That's what, what happened. I meant what I meant was the freezing of their accounts. I think they, yes. their, their future can be destroyed. We will not know it. But I think that's the heavy-handed approach I'm mentioning. Yes, use mild force to remove them. I'm not talking about the heavy-handedness in terms of shooting at people. And, you know, that did not happen. I totally agree with you. But the repercussions will be pretty long-term the way they have been uh, carried out right now. Uh, yes, you can have emergency powers. How you use them is up to you. And okay. I, I think I think it's a reasonable objection to, mm -hmm. to, to question whether the emergency powers were really necessary. And that is something that will come out in the debate. And uh, or whatever happens under the emergency rules, but by a requirement <clears> of the legislation, <throat> has to be reviewed in an inquiry and also has to be reviewed by parliament. So it's not as though they're, they're automatically going to get away with anything they've done that's wrong. And I do agree that uh, seizing people's bank accounts without due process of law uh, seems excessive. Um, the <coughs> funds were raised in large quantities, $10 million, uh, 
in order to finance a protest which did severe damage to the Canadian economy. And that's not something that the government can just shrug at and say, well, that's too bad. We can't do anything about it. They need to do something about it. And I, I don't particularly, I, I'm not persuaded personally that the protest could not and should not have been dealt with under regular law without recourse to the emergency law. But for some reason, the city of Ottawa and the city of Windsor were not able to accomplish that until the emergency came. So we may have more to learn about why exactly that wasn't necessary. I've mentioned, for example, the unwillingness of the tow truck drivers to tow the big rigs away. It you know, sounds like a, a detail, but well, it's kind of an important detail. That's what the blockade is. That's why you can't drive past the Canadian Parliament, or you couldn't until this morning. And that's a fundamental question that you said, Terry, and both of you talked about the fact that were emergency rules required? That's a very important question because there is nothing in the law that prevents you from taking care of things the way you did. What was the need for emergency powers to be brought in? That is a very critical question. I think I agree with Dr. Praveen Sinha in this matter that repercussions of this, the insidious way the governments can potentially act later against individuals who are cited through, uh, you know, and, and what actions will be taken against them individually targeted as it is happening. One of the biggest challenges that the right-wingers face in this country, in America or everywhere else, is the individual targeting of that. Uh, just to put the case aside on a different way, if anybody can criticize us for what we are, the, but the moment we question somebody, is branded as some kind of a phobia or the other. That's the challenge that we are facing. Now, a very simple question arises here. Emergency powers brought to bring about law and order and protect the life and property. How different is it from, you know, China, Tiananmen Square, he didn't fire the tank, he brought the tank to clear a one single individual or some people. People were killed. Nobody knows about that or news emanated later. How different is it bringing emergency powers to bring law and order when an, in a fascist or a, or a dictatorial country, the leader does that. He says, I do the same thing. Why are you criticizing me? Where is the free? What, what freedom are you talking about? If you can't uphold your freedom of right to protest, why are you telling me, lecturing me of democratic way of life? That's a fundamental question that emanates when you impose emergency <laughs> Two. And, 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 I, and I think the fundamental answer is the one I gave you earlier, yes. which is that everything the government does under the emergency powers is subject to review both by the parliament and by the courts. So if, if the government seizes your money and you don't like that, you think that's not right, well, you can go to court and you can win. Yeah. The courts are independent. That's a rather large and significant distinction between mm. Canada and the, your average dictatorship. Where, the, no, where no. the ruler can simply decide. <laughs> the dictatorships also say that our constitution <laughs> says this, right? We can do that. I have to protect but, the people, you know. Sinaji, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I, I think, Terry, you know the difference between these things. I mean, the point is, do you need to use those heavy-handed approaches? You, get, you give power to the government, to the law enforcement, it gets abused. We have seen that over and over and over again. If you can... Uh, so use a fly swatter. Why do you need a gun? 
I think they've handed over a gun to the authorities and individuals are being targeted. It's easy to say, yeah, they can go to the court. Uh, I mean, we saw what happened after 9-11. USA abused the power so much. Guantanamo Bay and all that, you saw that it all happened under our eyes. You give them power, they'll abuse it. People get, governments and law enforcement can get, get carried away. And what is the need to give so much power when it's not needed, when it could have been easily taken away? Yes, they have the right to go to the court, but should ordinary citizens be subjected to so much harassment by the government just because they didn't like what you stand for? I think these are important questions that countries have to ask. Uh, it's not just Canada. I think all the other countries which are seeing these unrest should also look at it, how to resolve these matters. I think we'll come to India a little bit more later. Yeah. India did severe mistakes too in that regard. But I just felt, and, and I think Justin Trudeau's in, this, in his uh, response at one time, he said, well, I like China very much. That did not help when he made that statement. Uh, because, you know, it, you know, it gives the other side the the means to demonize you even more. Uh, and I think that choice of analogy with China was not a good one that he gave. But I think Canadians and most of the other parts of the world where these things are happening, they have to examine how do we deal with these unrest that happened and quickly, quickly get hijacked by extreme elements and then social media and the regular media turns you know, a mountain into a mole and it becomes a serious concern for the entire nation. Well, I, th I think you make a very fair point, and I, 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 I'll just say that I think the people who drafted the Canadian Emergencies Act of 1988, which was a conservative government, by the way, would agree with you about the dangers of giving the government and the police too much power, which is why they wrote the act the way I've described it. Uh, it was an amendment, essentially, to the existing War Measures Act by which Trudeau's father, Pierre Trudeau, in his time in the October crisis, don't get me started, uh, in, back in 1970, invoked the War Measures Act, send in the troops. That was the case in which there was no question there was violence by the Front de la Libération de Québec, the separatist group in Quebec, which actually committed murder. There was a dead man in the trunk of a car. Uh, this was no time to fool around. Trudeau Sr. said, just watch me, famously, he said. And uh, in later years, a conservative government said, "Go on, well, you know, we can't have prime ministers calling troops out on the street uh, anytime they feel threatened or somebody disagrees with them. So we're going to write this legislation very carefully so that not only can Parliament allow or disallow the invocation of the Emergencies Act writ large, but also it's empowered, it's given a line item veto, if you will, in American terms, uh, so that any particular action, I, I get the sense that all three of us have misgivings about the seizure of bank accounts, for example, then the, the parliament can take exception to that and disallow that. Doesn't happen, doesn't matter what the government says. Uh, and that, that's the virtue of, of the way that the, that the legislation was rewritten. And these are very significant provisos. You know, anyone who wants to argue today that the Trudeau government has been heavy handed, uh, if they're right, if they've got evidence that this heavy hand is being unjustly used to hammer into individuals who are, don't deserve such treatment, well, then they'll win in court, won't they? And they'll get their money back. And the government won't have anything to say about it. That's the law. 
that's a law. I mean, you are totally right about that. The one of the beauties of democracy is the rule of law, and as somebody very aptly put it, the criminals thrive on the compassion of the societies and their laws because it takes time for the wheels of justice to rotate or the justice to be delivered. By the time it's too late for some people, let's talk about a very fundamental concept of democracy: the freedom part of it. There needs, there seems to be, I mean need for drawing a line that you can't cross, can't go beyond in democracies as well. That's why you have freedom uh, emergency laws to tackle emergency scenarios. Yeah, if China attacks India, if Canada is invaded by America, there are emergency laws required for those extraordinary moments. And as we talked about, the politician has the amazing knack of using laws against in times which doesn't suit them. That's the important element. Yeah, I mean, parliament will vote one way or the other, but the action has been taken. Consequences have already happened. My point here is, our democracies, it's a, it's a different question here. The way we are seeing the world around us today is a bigger question. Our democracies ending up hurting themselves. Because think about it like this, to, 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 just to give an example. Ukraine has been attacked many times. The days have passed, dates have passed. Even Putin, the joke is out that Putin is wondering, what are these people talking about attacking, me attacking, you know? That's the whole scenario right now. Who is abusing democratic system to their advantage? Are democracies hurting themselves because of excesses of freedom like it happened in the US, whether Antifa and Black Lives Matter or India, the farmers' agitation, which Trudeau supported wholeheartedly for the very reasons that there were Canadian citizens and people who were participating in those strikes and violently at that, and money was going from here to there. How does one come to terms with such you know, divergence of action and justifications? What is the important part here? How do we, how do democracies protect the very system? that they have designed to for people who are willing to subscribe to the rule of law vis-a-vis -vis those who come and abuse those very set of laws. Um, I will take a, a small jab at that. Sure. I, think <laughs> that <laughs> I think that democracies have become more vulnerable to social media than uh, dictatorships are. As you can see, things happen in China, uh, nobody even knows. Uh, it takes a very long time for them to surface because of lack of access and you know total ban on social media. Same thing with, I can name other countries as well, but democracies have become a lot more vulnerable. Small event in India will be in headlines and social media all over the world. Or us, you know, a truckers movement here could have been solved a lot easily uh, in Canada if it was not internationalized and amount of uh, garbage that is being thrown at Trudeau is 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 unnecessary, but I think we are living in different times. How do we take out the so-called social media impact on turning? Uh, I've used this. I'm going to use the same phrase again. Mold into a mountain and making it an international event uh, is a challenge for democracy. Terry, I'd like to hear what you think of that because this is a this has been bothering me for quite some time because we see selective amplification of events and selective suppression of events by people who have stronger hold on public and social media. And you might have seen some experiences you had 
in which you know people jumped at you in large number when you came on Twitter to promote your book and, and used abusive language and turned all that into a, a circus. Uh, I'm, I'm sort of, at, I don't know what to make out of the social media amplification and suppression to create narratives and create chaos in democracies. Um, it's a very large subject and it's much bigger than social media, of course. The, it, it's one thing to say that, as many people do, uh, futilely, unfortunately, that the social media giants should crack down and they should police speech and everything they don't want to do. Uh, and they should somehow be empowered to decide who gets to speak and throw people off their platforms. And the way in which they handled that to date uh, suggests they're not capable. Uh, they allow nonsense and they disallow, you know, they, they, they freeze out the wrong people. Then they find out, oh, we got that wrong because, of course, it was all decided by some computer, not by a human being uh, responding to complaints as though the complaints were legitimate. Oh, well, we got a lot of complaints. Yeah, but they weren't legitimate. Oh, oh, he didn't say that. Oh, sorry. And then you get your account back. This is how it really works on Twitter, by the way. What I've just described to you. This is how it works is that a computer decides based on, oh, there's a huge volume of complaints. Well, that's because they organized complaints deliberately in order to try to overwhelm your system for assessing the constant deluge of uh, requests that comes in every day to Twitter, for example, that we, I want you to gag my enemies and throw them off Twitter. And I've got 200 friends who are prepared to send in the same report. And the computer looks at that, oh, 200 complaints. We better knock this guy off Twitter. So that's, on, that's one small aspect of it, which I, which I mentioned just to illustrate the fact that this is much bigger, bigger than saying, why can't we police social media more effectively to prevent abuses, abusiveness, uh, and uh, uh, the pollution of the public space for debate what I'm getting at is that the problem as it exists everywhere and not just on social media seems to me a basic lack of education. It's a failure, a monumental and appalling failure of the educational system to provide basic civics education. We have people, leaders of this movement in Canada, this world-shaking movement in Canada, which has set trucks on the road from France and Germany to Mexico. And it is led by people who thought that they could drive their trucks to the capital city and take over the government by appealing to the governor general, who is a figurehead with no power at all to do anything, in concert with Canada's laughable unelected Senate, another absurdity, and the government will somehow miraculously melt away, and we, the truckers, will form a sort of junta, uh, which will take over the government and cancel all the vaccine mandates. In other words, the people who wrote this might as well have been a couple of pot-smoking teenagers. They had no idea how Canada or any other country is run. They are unable to assess what is real. They're not literate. 
So there's a failure of the educational system, which, which infects every aspect of the debate that we're having now. This whole question is infected by ignorance on the part of people who are joining up to QAnon and end up in the truckers' convoy, people who are part of the Proud Boys and other white supremacist organizations, they also ended up in the truckers' freedom convoy. What is even their understanding of freedom if it involves depriving other people of their freedom to go to work, which is what they did. I mean, but I, 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 I listened to a phone call that was made by a woman whose brother, I think it was her brother-in-law, forgive me, uh, who was caught up in the blockade of the Ambassador Bridge between Canada and the US. And she was appealing to a trucker on their radio system. They look, my, my brother-in-law has diabetes. He needs his medication. He's stuck in his traffic jam, which of course, can you please just, you know, let it up for 15 minutes or so, so he can get out because, you know, he could die otherwise. And the trucker was on, on the other end said, yeah, well, we've been waiting two years for our freedom. Click, hang up. Yeah, this is so that the sort of freedom they have in mind. We have a problem. So, you, so, Teddy, you, said, you said it very well, Terry. I mean, this is the exact scenario as to whose freedom are we talking about? And I, you, you made some very powerful comment about the uneducated, the illiterate, the teenager who is acting in consort or cohort with somebody to derail a process. Uh, an unelected Senate and a governor general who has no power. And it exists in every democratic system, right? That kind of a structure exists. My, my, my thought process is, is Sinaji, you, you, you must, you, I would invite you to comment on that. Okay. Where so, does the line get drawn? That's, that's the point which is important. Whose strike is valid and whose is not? Who is infested with um, mad teenagers or mad anyone, white teenagers alone, were mad teenagers or anybody. And, you know, people who are doing something with a vested interest, with a particular motive to derail, like in this case, Trudeau's defeat, in India's case, beat Modi with any stick that you can get. That's the point which I'm trying to talk about here. Yeah. Do democracies, uh, see, you know, see. are democracies in a position to protect themselves or are they making people disbelieve in the very process of governance that they have opted out to. See, whenever there is a protest, there is a reason for it. Somebody has to decide how legitimate that reason is. Is it basically a nuisance or is it there a legitimate demand behind it? In this case, in the case of Canadian truckers, it was vaccination mandate. Okay. Uh, if you simply say the people who believe, who are against this mandate are loonies, crazies, and you strongly believe that that is the wrong thing, then yes, take a heavy-handed approach and get them out because they're basically being a nuisance element. But I don't think that is the case. If you look at the globally, it is not the case. Uh, people are standing up, libertarians are standing up against it. And <clears throat> what is the right way to deal with it? <clears throat> if you think it's an outrageous, crazy demand, then yes, I think maybe something more heavy-handed is needed to get them out. They should not be allowed to stay in the street and jamming everything for three to four weeks. But if it is something that requires more education, the government has to engage uh, with that and then and then deal with that. So that's a tough question to answer what is right and what is wrong. You just look at from the left wing or the right wing lens and you will find the answers will be somewhat opaque and some, to some it will be crystal clear. 
but I think the bigger question is how do democracies handle with these unrest that come about? Uh, and I think we have seen, and I will go back to social media again, Terry, and I agree it's part of the equation, it's not the full equation. I think we've become so polarized. We only see it one way. We refuse to see from the other angle. And that polarization is hijacked by extreme fringe element. I can, when you talk about the Proud Boys and other extreme right-wing crazy nuts, yes, they were there. But when that Black Lives movement happened in USA, the extreme leftists came in. When the farmers' protests happened in India, the extreme communists and all that came in to create a havoc. So the bigger challenge is how do democracies preserve the freedom at the same time maintain law and order? And uh, how do we not let this jam economies like India or Canada in the future without people questioning democracy itself? I, I think do not know what is the right answer, but you know I can tell you that for any movement, whether it's in Canada, India, USA, there will always be a debatable topic, whether this is right or wrong, and how does the government decide that? I don't know, but I think debate and somehow some discussion with those people is necessary. That is uh, what is can... important. That's very important here. And that's a, this a, in democracy, it's such a lofty ideal and uh, working everywhere. There is a phrase called democratic aspiration. It it delights me and it chills me both at the same time because whose democratic aspiration against what is democratic aspiration of a person like me, Bibhuti Jha, to have my own country overrides the democratic right of a nation state to exist and its people. So where does one draw a line between democratic aspirations of a particular kind vis-a-vis -vis the, the grander and the bigger interest of the people at large? That's, the, that's a bigger challenge that is the democracies are facing right now. I think the, the democracies, in, in my view, uh, are handling it pretty well in this sense, that they are sticking, those that are still democracies, by democratic principles, meaning that they protect and defend the right to protest, the right to dissent, the right to demonstrate and to speak up to express your views, to say down with the prime minister, to call him names, all legit free speech, but also to say where the line that you're asking about, where to draw it. Well, you draw it at violence, most obviously. You draw that line where if you step over the line into violence, then, okay, you, you, you're outside the demo, democratic compact, you've broken the rules, you're, lock them up. You, we'll see you in court if you, if you think you can justify what you did. Then there's a gray area which we have in Canada in the current case, where it's not violence against people, but violence against the economy, where mm -hmm. you're engaging in well-funded economic sabotage. Whole factory plants are forced to close down. Uh, whole towns of auto workers are out of work and no money. Uh, where, where exactly that line is to be drawn is a trickier question. But I would suggest to you that your freedom to swing your fist stops when it hits my nose. 
and that if we if we enshrine that principle in the law, perhaps better phrase than I just did, then we are on the way to answering your question, are we not? That if you draw the line at violence or the threat of violence, then you're on the right track. And the reason I emphasize or the threat of violence is because sometimes you don't have to actually carry it out. You just say that you will. I mean, we've had on the streets of Ottawa, for example, in the last few days, in the last three weeks, in fact, absolutely vicious, virulent, obscene insults hurled constantly at reporters on the street trying to do their jobs. We go now live to Terry Malewski, who's standing on Wellington Street, and uh, what's happening where you are now? Well, and you can't be heard. You can't be heard because there are people spitting at you. This happened yesterday to a CBC reporter, a colleague of mine. A crowd started yelling at him, spitting at him, telling him he worked for the devil. But Terry, Terry let me just back off on that a little bit. I mean, every protest has economic consequences, okay? So violence, I totally agree. There's no ifs and buts about it. Violence comes in, we have to take action. Law and order is important in democracy. Let's talk about the economic impact. Um, every protest has economic implications, every protest. You shut down, you hold a rally, things will be grounded. So the question becomes, when you draw the line, how much is economic damage too much in a democracy? How much we can handle? And I think uh, so th those become a line to be drawn as well. Um, but let me, because I think we're running out of time, I do want you to bring to another bring you to another topic. I think one thing I think we must recognize as a mature democracy like Canada or USA is that these unrest have their own life they can take and they can create serious economic damage. And at least the leaders of democratic that republics like Canada, USA, should be very careful in sticking their nose out and start preaching the rest of the world about things happening there when nothing wrong has happened. The Prime Minister of India, or for that matter, USA, did not start teaching Justin Trudeau, be careful, you cannot do this, you cannot do that. The right of truckers is more important. We understand that democracies are vulnerable to these kind of unrest. And as a responsible leader, we should not do that. Nothing happened in India, and Justin Trudeau was tweeting left and right at the behest of Khalistanis living in Canada, whom, as you know very well, are highly notorious elements. They were sending serious amounts of money to fund unrest in India, just like the Proud Boys and other groups were doing that in Canada, which you were very offended by. And I think we were offended by Khalistanis sending money to create unrest in India, and to say that Justin Trudeau was not aware of it, will be lying on the face. He was fully aware and he was tweeting. And I think a lot of Indians take a huge offense at his duplicity to stick his nose out and try to preach to Indians who did the, I would say the Indian prime minister went out of it to accommodate those thugs. He should not have. He should have acted like Justin Trudeau and cleaned them out. He did not do it. But his audacity to do these things when he is basically in a totally different uh, scale in terms of how much he's going to tolerate is very concerning to most of us. And his repeated statements like swastika and all that are very concerning to us because I think he, these are basically people who come with uh, pretending to have a big heart, but are bigoted deep down inside. And I think it's a very concerning thing about him.
So I wanted to take have your take on that. Justin Trudeau's comment on India when what he did here, not being able to see that the Indian government was basically doing, respecting the wish that Canadians expected of him to do, and uh, and then after that, uh, giving a complete blind eye to the fact that Canadians were the ones who were funding that unrest in India. That's, so a, that, that's exactly the point which I was going to ask. Thank you, Praveen, for putting that up in the on the on the arena. But this is critical. Sermonizing is the easiest thing in the world for any democratic leader or any leader to do. India got sermonized by the West. Even even tidbit uh, people where Rihanna and uh, you know Malala's and others of the world were educating in the whole world about the farmers' agitation in United in India. As if India was committing a crime. This is the important part, but the media failed India. And I think if I were in Prime Minister Modi's place, I will tell every the entire world, go hatch your eggs in your own country. Don't tell me what to do about myself. And I wonder, I wonder really, and I would say that since you are in the press and the media and I am in the media, let's speculate a bit. Let us speculate a bit if had Modi done this, emergency powers. Indira Gandhi had far fewer grounds to declare emergency in 1975. She did it to protect her seat, which everybody knows, for a technical violation of a campaign requirement which Allahabad High Court ruled against her. And everybody said, protect your seat, declare emergency, you know what happened. My point is that I was I never knew that I was going to see another emergency kind of a scenario in my lifetime. And that is happening in the most democratic country in the world, like Canada or United States for that matter. How does, how will the media, how what is the role of media here in fueling and the toolkits that are operating in India against India from abroad, the cohort, the orchestra, which is operating against Modi in India. If Modi had done these emergency powers, shut down Shaheen Bagh, shut down everything else, people would have said democracy is dead. Modi is the ultimate tyrant, ultimate Hitler. In reality, it is, as Sinha, Dr. Dr. Sinha pointed out, it was shameful of Trudeau to talk about swastik in parliament, not knowing, does he, does he not know how important there is a difference between swastik and Hagenkruz? Come on. This is something which the duplicity, duplicitous nature of certain leaders emerges. And that's where the Indians have become very skeptical and cynical of the Western media trying to sermonize and preach to India about the democratic way of life. All right. First of all, let me just before I answer the main question on the issue of swastika versus Hakenkreutz, most Canadians would have no, no idea what you were talking about. Mm -hmm. Very few people in the West know of the swastika except in connection with Nazi Germany. Right. So it goes, it goes back to the late 1930s when it became the emblem of the Nazi party. And, that, and when people refer to a swastika, that's what they mean. They don't know what, uh, what you, that, what's a Hakenkreuz, what's that? They, don't, they have no idea. It's not, it, it, it's not that, simply that's how language becomes organic. It's an organic thing. That is the word that people use for that symbol. It doesn't mean that uh, that Western people uh, disdain the Hindu religion or something. They don't even know of that dispute. 
So I, 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 I beseech you to set that on one side and to recognize that nobody is saying anything about Hindus when they refer to the swastika, they mean the Nazi symbol. And they are unaware that in ancient time, since ancient times, something similar has been used by the Hindu religion. They, they're not even aware of it. So you can't beat them with that stick with respect. Now as to the larger question, the, uh, the issue as I see it in uh, Trudeau's, uh, well, to, to call it a misstep or a mistake is putting it lightly, in my view. Uh, and it illustrates uh, his, his, his approach to the farmers' protests in India um, was lamentable, and it illustrates the extent to which the political echelon of, in all parties, not just his own Liberal Party in Canada, has been captured by the Khalistani narrative that everything India do, does is fascist and genocidal uh, and uh, they should be condemned uh, for these crimes uh, unreservedly at every opportunity. And this is, this is what he hears apparently from uh, people of Sikh origin living in Canada who he wants to vote liberal. And that's what this is about. It's about pandering to the noisiest leaders of a small minority of uh, Sikhs and other Indians living in Canada. There's about okay. a million, Teddy, uh, Teddy, at let, least, half of them Sikhs. You have spent your whole life covering Khalistan issue. You have written extensively their connection to terrorist networks, how much terror they have inflicted all over the world, not just India. Um, to say that Trudeau is unaware of these things. If he's pandering to those people, then it's no different than a right-winger pandering to neo-Nazi parties. I think that the analogy is not much different. Actually, a lot worse here than neo-Nazis in, in USA because neo-Nazis are not going all over the world committing terrorist acts. The fact is that he's fully aware of what these people are based on your extensive work and the work of other people in Canada. There has been concern about what these people are doing in Canada, uh, knowing very well that all the farmers' movements are funded by these people, knowing very well what they want to do to a country like India, destabilize it, break it up, if possible. I think this is a very serious concern to people. It cannot be simply brushed aside as saying, oh, they are pandering to the liberal wing of the party. I think it's way more than that. Well, I, I hope uh, it didn't sound like I was brushing it aside by saying yeah. that that it was a, 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 a grave mistake by Trudeau uh, that um, and that it's a shame. To me, it's it, it, it's atrocious. It's an outrage the extent to which politics in Canada have been uh, captured by the uh, sort of fake Khalistani narrative, which represents a microscopic minority of uh, the non-resident Indians, uh, Sikhs and Hindus alike in the diaspora in Canada and the UK and Germany all over the world. Uh, I mean, I, I think it was a grave mistake by Trudeau to utter any opinion about the, the farmers' protests in India, and it makes him look like a hypocrite. 
uh, to, to Indians. You know, he's allowed to crack down, uh, apparently, but Modi is not. Uh, that, that, that's how it, how it seems. And I think, I mean, I have spent some years of my career uh, trying to suggest to my own audience, small as it is in Canada, uh, that this is obscene. That, uh, that, that uh, Khalistani terrorists should be worshipped as heroes and mar great martyrs publicly, having uh, blown up a civilian airliner and slaughtered 300 completely innocent civilians. Uh, that, that to me is, is an atrocity in itself to honor these people as though they're heroes and martyrs. Having said that though, I, 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 think, I think that, that Trudeau's mistake was one of ignorance and stupidity, if that's not too strong a word. Ignorance of what, what's, how this would look in India, which is an important country with which Canada presumably wants better relations, and stupidity in, you know, just plain political stupidity. You know, why, why would he want to pander to a group which is such a small minority? It doesn't make any sense in his own self-interest, but to f write off the other half a million Indians that live, uh, people of Indian origin and descent who live in Canada and just write them off because we, I want to pander to these guys because they make more noise at election time. That's not dismissing it. I'm just saying that his reasons are lousy. His reasons for this pandering, and I'm, uh, you know, time is time. Time is coming to a close. It has been a very, very insightful conversation. I have enjoyed it, and I think we need more. We may need more conversation, primarily because in in an era where technology is making tectonic shifts in which we, the way we communicate, news travels faster than the speed of lightning. If my if I may use that cliche, uh, it is very important for us to bear in mind is that today, I think the way Canada has handled its, uh, uh, its truckers' strike is laudable for many because he protected the assets, pro pro protected law and order, and protected his citizens. But the, me the measures that he took, the emergency measures, that can be open to question. Perhaps Prime Minister Modi will draw a lesson out of this. To hell with the world opinion, I will do what I must do. Because the damage to the economy, to the social life, was enormous. And I shudder to think that the same Western media that is shutting its eyes against uh, you know, Canada's action, rightfully maybe it is, would have chastised him, taken him to literally hold him over the coal for killing democracy. You know, this is the sad part of the duplicitous behavior that the media engages in with reference to my preferred course of action. So you have a liberal leftist Marxist media that plays to the gallery, incites the violence, and who doesn't know that the toolkit exists? For I totally agree with you about swastik issue, for example. You are absolutely right. Half the world doesn't know. Half the Indians don't, don't care whether you called swastik, uh, hack and cruise as swastik. But the two symbols are, to, to even a blind eye, it would be very different. It is not for Trudeau to ignore that. 
You can say that average Canadian, average Indian, average American knows nothing about the difference because it has been branded as swastik at some point in time, but not for the national leadership. Those people have to be more aware. There is a, that's where the responsibility function comes in here. So with these words, I will, I will have to close this show today. And uh, you know what is important here is that we are discussing it in civility. We are not indulging in violence, nor do we mean violence for anyone. But democracy must survive. And the democratic leadership around the world must demand two things. And I believe that we have to demand reciprocity and we have to play the game better, as I prefer to say. If my enemy is playing the game and defeating me in, with my rules, then I have to play the game better than them. And with these words, I would like to say thank you, Terry, for being part of the show. Thank, thank you, Sinaji, for being and for viewers. Please thank you, subscribe and share the show. Press the bell icon. We are new in the mm. United States. Uh, we have launched Jaipur Dialogue USA, and we are going to expand more and more. More shows will be coming on a day or on, or on a, you know in a more scheduled manner, other than just the weekly show. Thank you very much. Have a thank great you. weekend. And we'll talk again. Bye now. Bye. 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 -bye.